0: Welcome to Learn Me Right. Um, today we are here with our very own Ruthie array. Welcome, Ruthie, to your own podcast. It's so great to be here. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, we are, I am so excited to be able to talk to you about your research. Finally, we've been doing this podcast for a while now and I'm so excited to finally be able to showcase your research on our very own pod. So, uh, what is your position here at QUT?
1: So I am a PhD candidate in the Australian Centre for Health Law Research and I also do research assistant work with the centre, um, particularly the end of life law research team.
0: Amazing. Now we have some rapid fire questions, ready to turn back on you, your pronouns.
1: She or her. Your highlight of the year so far. So at the time of recording, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm predicting it's going to be a trip to Scotland that I'm leaving on next Friday. Uh, So I'm very excited to go and see Scotland meet uh, my partner's family and friends and have a great time over there.
0: I will sorely miss you, but I also cannot wait for the haggis key ring you have promised to bring back for me.
1: (laughs) I solemnly swear.
0: (laughs) What is your coffee order?
1: Mostly an oat cappuccino these days.
0: And finally, um, what would you sing at karaoke?
1: I propose a duet with you to sing Skater Boy by Avril Lavigne.
0: I accept. Send you it. (laughs) Amazing. So you know the first question, um, but let us delve right in. What is your research area
1: and what are you currently working on? So my PhD focuses on voluntary sister dying. So that is my broad research area. But in particular, I'm really interested in finding out um, and, and sort of outlining in my research the importance of patients and families in shaping or influencing how bad systems work in practice. So that is my main uh, research area and I have been, as part of my PhD, doing qualitative interviews with patients and caregivers in both Australia and Canada. And I'm currently writing up the results of those papers and have sort of submitted one for publication and one's about to go in. And that, those papers really outline, you know, what are patients and families doing? Why are they doing it? Um, what are the impacts of their actions on how voluntary Sister dying operates? And what are some of the factors that impact why they take these actions or, or how they feel or what the outcomes are?
0: Beautiful. So congratulations on finishing your interviews and making it so far with so many of your pubs. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you're finding?
1: Um, Absolutely. And so, as I said, these publications have been submitted but not yet accepted or published. So, what I say um, is still subject to that sort of peer review process. But what we are finding in both Australia and Canada, it, it relates to sort of four key themes. So, I'll talk about each of those. The first one is that we're finding patients and families take a lot of actions that are intended to influence or alter how the VAD system or the MAID system, as it's called in Canada, is actually operating in practice. So for example, they are doing things like telling their stories about their lived experience of voluntary assisted dying. If they are encountering issues or experiences that are um, maybe in some way negative, they're advocating about that or they're providing feedback to institutions or to funeral directors or funeral homes about things that weren't working well. They are offering their peer support to other people who've gone through the process. There's a whole variety, there's a whole spectrum of actions that people are are doing, and some of them are very creative, and sometimes people are doing many different things. And that leads into our second thing that we're exploring, which is why, what are the motivations for people doing this? And there are a few. So one of them relates to the person that they were supporting. So sometimes it's about, VAD was a choice that was really important to the particular person who's died. And their motivation is to honour their legacy and to honour their choices and to say that this was a really important thing that that they went through and I'm now going to sort of take that legacy and contribute to the system. Sometimes for people it's about personal healing. So they might have had a really complex emotional experience with VAD and they take actions, like they tell their story, for example, to try and sort of process some of that those feelings that they felt um, going through that process, but a really interesting and important motivation is that they want to help other people and make the system better. So we found that across both Australia and Canada, people are taking action because they recognise that there's a gap or a problem or a barrier to access and they don't want other people to have to experience that. So they're taking action to try and fix that or to make it better or to make it so that other people don't have to encounter that same barrier. Sometimes, this is actually really successful, um, that their actions are shaping and they are really powerful in influencing how systems are operating in practice. So, I think what this research really demonstrates is that the voices of patients and caregivers are actually very influential and have great power to sort of influence change within the systems. We did also find that, in terms of the individual, people found that taking these actions sort of helped them process their own feelings. It did actually achieve that goal in some cases of them processing their own sort of grief or healing. Um, and it also in in some instances improved a person's access to, to voluntary assisted dying. And, and the final theme that I'll mention is that we've looked at factors that impacted or mediated as we call it in the papers those other three themes. So what are some of the things that that, uh, exist that might impact what someone's actions are or what they do? And one that's probably come through already in what I've explained is the nature of somebody's experience. So if somebody is experiencing a really difficult made process or a difficult, bad process, uh, for example, they're encountering barriers to access, the nature of that experience might prompt them to take action or might motivate them to do something to make the system better. Another mediating factor is somebody's personality. So we spoke to a lot of people who really believed in assisted dying as an option. uh, And their support for assisted dying prompted them to take action or motivated what kinds of actions they might take. So just as an example, uh, a lot of people who supported assisted dying, uh, particularly in Canada, volunteered as independent witnesses so that they could help other people access their choice. So they're the four main themes that we're, we've found in the research.
0: I um I find it so interesting that this whole process for people who are going through it is steeped in deep emotion like love for the one that they've lost, um, love in a way that is resulting in them trying to process their grief and trying to find healing, love for others, like a selflessness there to try and change this to either help people either, you know, achieve the same experience or stop them having to go through what they did. I just think it's so interesting because you think of legal systems and you think of black and white, and but when it comes to health and especially like end of life and, and death, there is just so much emotion here um, that is just so interesting that it's Coming through, that it's been a real driver of, of change.
1: Absolutely, and there's a paper that I'm sort of working on at the moment which really explores that in a bit more detail and looks at some of the factors. It sort of examines that idea of the nature of somebody's experience prompting actions or affecting their motivations in a lot more detail, and you're absolutely right that people's emotions, their emotional experiences of the process are real drivers for their actions. Mm. Um, Sometimes people had really positive experiences. So one person, for example, said, the patient that I supported, their death was just so beautiful. Like, I want to do anything I can to help other people have that same opportunity to have such a peaceful, beautiful death like that. A lot of people also, even if the experience was really good, They still grieve because they'd lost somebody that they loved. Mm. And so that was, as you said, a real motivator or a real driver for actions. And I suppose the point of this research is to emphasize that we don't just create a legal system or a regulatory system that happens to patients and families. They're not just passive people who are just impacted by all these things. They're actually taking their experiences. And generating change, they're influencing change to alter the system. So I think it's really important to recognise that they're not just passive objects of bad regulation. They're actually really influential in how it's working in practice, or in in trying to make it better.
0: Yeah, that that is really interesting because you you do see that the law is made for people, but people are. They are humans. They have love. They have experiences. They have personalities. They are living beings. And we cannot just pretend like the law operates in a vacuum outside of people's feelings, especially in the context of dying and voluntary assisted dying, like, you know, death literacy is not a a highly spoken about thing. It's not very prevalent, especially in Australia. and. Dealing with death is you know, something that a lot of people are really scared about. Um, so it's so important to make sure that we understand the legal system in the context of very sensitive, very emotional, very difficult, ta- ta- challenging times in people's lives. So in light of the next question, um, which is what could the government do in this particular situation to help? Um, I think, could, could you speak to identifying whether or not it is a problem? that people are changing the system or whether it's a good thing that people are changing the system. So
1: I think it can be both of those things. I think that if somebody is doing things that are really meaningful and important to them and they're doing it because they want to, not because they feel like they have to, then that's something that governments and regulatory systems more broadly should look at and say, well, this is, this is something that we really need to respond to appropriately and support them to do that if they want to. But I also think it can highlight where there are issues. So I I don't think that it should fall upon the shoulders of patients and families to have to take action or to have to sort of advocate so strongly to overcome barriers to access or issues in quality care or to fill gaps in regulation. Because in in particular, in, in bad we're talking about people who are terminally ill or in Canada, grievously and irremediably ill. And families who are losing somebody that they love. So we shouldn't expect that role of them. If they, they want to take that action, if they want to be involved in shaping system change, that, that's fantastic. But I think that we need to have really good systems in place to recognise when somebody is doing that because they want to, or when somebody's doing that because they feel like they have to, and we need to try and take that burden away from them and fix those issues elsewhere. So I think that's why it's really important to listen to some of the research that's coming out and to some of the stories that are coming out in the media about some of the the access barriers and, and sort of quality issues that are being identified to sort of say okay well people are telling us that this is a problem we don't want them to have to fix this or to try and overcome this how can the system respond um, so that that is no longer a problem
0: it sounds like it's um' <clears throat> particularly important in voluntary assisted dying in the context of death and grief and the the terminally ill people, this is not the best time of their lives and their family members are going to be really struggling with this entire process. So instead of patients and families being responsible for amplifying concerns and governments just, you know, holding an ear out, you know, 100 feet away, just be like, oh, this might be an issue. Seems like governments need to be far more sensitive in this context than they have previously. They need to have systems in place that where they get a complaint or a concern, it is far more properly dealt with and taken far more seriously, particularly in light of this, this, this whole point of the human condition, you know, like the whole death process.
1: Mm. I totally agree. And I think, I think it's hard as well, because I know that voluntary assisted dying is new, we're still learning about it in Australia, that last I only passed it last year, and it hasn't come into effect yet. Um, And I know that it's a contested issue, but I absolutely agree, I think that we do need to, uh, the government does need to have a closer ear out to listen to some of these issues and to try and respond to them, particularly because over the next few years, states will be reviewing their legislation. So some of these issues that have been raised and advocated about by patients and families would be really important in considering how best to update uh, legislation.
0: So a government solution, they need to be far more sensitive mm-hmm. and need to pay very close attention in the next few years in these reviews to what the patients and the families are saying. Um, but in the meantime, or from then on, what can like, the individual person do to help, especially potentially to take the load off some of these people who are going through a really tough time?
1: So I think the whole point of my research is that exactly as you said, individuals can do a lot. Individuals are extremely powerful. And I think sometimes we underestimate people. Um, I think that when we actually look at it, people have been really influential, first of all, in it becoming a law, they've shared their stories, they've shared their feedback, and that's why really we have law in the first place. Um, But continue to do that. And I, I, I totally agree that we can't really just leave it to the people who are in that sort of space of trying to access assisted dying or just having supported somebody. If you see an issue with the law, and you're seeing evidence that that's not working and people are telling you they're sharing their lived experience that that was really hard when I went through that process, you can also join in and provide your voice and sort of maybe write to a politician or uh, share, share information and do things like that to try and advocate for change if it's something that you believe in. Mm.
0: Given that this is something that affects every single person, not whether or not they'll access voluntary assisted dying, but, you know, the end of life process is something that every single person has to go through. I think it's fair to say that it's our communal responsibility to pitch in and help out those who may be struggling with this and have been burdened with this responsibility of reforming the law. So um, I feel quite inspired, (laughs) Ruthie.
1: Thank you. And, And I should say, and I probably have made it sound a little negative, some people really found this meaningful and fulfilling. Um, So I think I want to emphasise that as well. But yes, absolutely. I do think it is a communal responsibility. They're they're our laws. And if we want them to improve, then we have a responsibility to listen Mm. and to try and take action to improve them for the benefit of everybody.
0: Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm so inspired by the work that you do and all the amazing publications that you're going to get out, which are, by, By no doubt, going to actually help change this space. So, thank you so much for finally letting me interview you. (laughs) Thanks for interviewing me. (laughs) Um, And thank you to our listeners.